chapter 13, please, verses 23 and 24. It says, Then said one unto him, Lord, are there few that be saved? And he said unto them, Strive to enter in at the straight gate, for many, I say unto you, will seek to enter in, and shall not be able. These two verses, to me, stick out just like a sore thumb. Do you know what Jesus is telling his disciples? He's saying, listen, there will be some people who vow that they want to go to heaven, but instead will wind up in hell. Say, that's an awesome thought. There are people in the building tonight, if I asked, if you wanted to go to heaven when you died, you'd raise your hand, but instead you'll wind up in hell. Some said, Brother Ron, will heaven be big enough for everybody that's been saved? You know, I don't think that's the question. I think the question is, will hell be big enough for everybody who's died without Christ? You say, well, that's pessimistic. No, that's Bible. Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Jesus said, Strive to enter in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth unto destruction, and many there be that find it. But straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that go in thereat. So the Bible teaches that many will find the broad road that leads to destruction, but comparatively there will only be a few that will find the narrow road that leads to heaven. Tonight I'm going to speak on the most simple subject you've ever heard in your life, probably by the most simple preacher. No amens, Brother Blakeney, no amens. Tonight I'm speaking on the subject, why some people will die and go to hell who say they want to go to heaven, or enter ye in at the straight gate. I believe perhaps the most prevalent reason why people die and go to hell who say they want to go to heaven is a five-letter word, P-R-I-D-E, pride. Job 35, verse 12, There they cry, but none giveth answer because of the pride of evil men. Proverbs 6, 16 and 17, These six things of the Lord hate, yea, seven are an abomination unto him. Say, do you know what is at the top of the list of the seven sins that God hates? A proud look. I contend that God hates your pride above every sin that you commit. And I'll elaborate that in, in just a little bit. Proverbs 11, verse 2. When pride cometh, then come a shame. Proverbs 16, verse 18. Pride goeth before destruction, and the haughty spirit before a fall. Proverbs 21, verse 4. And high look and a proud heart. And the plowing of the wicked is sin. James 4, verse 6. He giveth more grace, wherefore he saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. 1 John 2, 17. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. You know, as I go across America and around the world, I meet all types of pride. There's family pride. There's pride of achievement. They're social pride. But as far as I'm concerned, the most despicable type of pride of all is intellectual pride. And I can have patience with most types of pride, but I do not have much patience with intellectual pride. Somebody says, Brother Comfort, I won't get saved because I've got intellectual problems. You hear me? Your problems are not in your head. Your problems are in your heart. You give God Almighty your heart, and God Almighty will take care of your head. 
And your problem is not intellectual, your problem is spiritual. 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 21. For after that in the wisdom of God, the world by wisdom knew not God. It pleased God by the foolishness of preaching to save them to believe. 1 Corinthians 1.25 For the foolishness of God is wiser than man. I was preaching in Altoona, Pennsylvania. After the service is over one night, a young lady confronted me and she wanted to argue about everything. And for a half an hour, she wanted to argue. If I had said that the grass was green, she would have said, no, it's blue. If I had said the sky was blue, she'd have said, no, it's green. And after about a half an hour, I got so tired of listening to argument. I said, wait a minute, wait a minute. If you are so smart, why don't you create a universe? I learned a long time ago, Romans 4 verse 5, let God be true and every man a liar. And if you will realize, let God be true and every man a liar, it will save you a lot of grief in life. Say, many die and go to hell because of pride. Now, why did I say that pride was at the top of the list of the sins that God hates? You know why? Because every sin you've ever committed in your entire life was motivated by pride. Think of that. Why does a man run off with his neighbor's wife? Is he worried about kids that are going to grow up in a broken home as I did and my brother and sister did and my other sister whom I have not seen but twice in 35 years? I've got a sister that we left when I was seven years old. She was two years old. If she walked in the back door tonight, I would not know where I've seen her two times in 35 years. Was my dad worried about splitting up his family when he left my mother? No, sir. Was he worried about a woman who may wind up in a mental institution for 30 years as my own mother did? No, sir. Let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. That man who runs off with his neighbor's wife isn't even worried about his neighbor's wife. All he's worried about is gratifying his own lust and his own desires. And I want to say, if a man will run off from his wife to run off with you, he'll run off from you too. And pride is the basis of all the sins we ever commit. I find this in the Bible, Pastor. Every man who had a downfall, it all started with pride. Go back there in the dawn of eternity. In Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 15, we read, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the earth, which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also on the mount in the sides of the congregation, the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit. Do you know that the word Lucifer means light bearer? And Lucifer was the prime minister of all of God's creation. But Lucifer was not satisfied with that exalted position. He wanted to be like the Most High. And five times in three verses, Lucifer said, I will. And finally, he said, I will be like the Most High. And because of Lucifer's pride, God cast him out of heaven. He traded an eternity in heaven for an eternity in hell. Then you go to the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 2, 16 and 17, God told Adam this, Of every tree of the garden thou mayest eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil thou shalt not eat of it, for in the day that thou eatest thereof thou shalt surely die. 
And in Genesis 3, verse 1, the Satan, uh, Satan embodied the serpent. By the way, do you know that there's a connotation that one day the serpent did not wa- crawl on his belly like he does today, but he walked on legs as the other animals of the field. And the Bible's connotation is that the serpent was the most beautiful of all of God's animal creation. That's the connotation of the Word of God. Let me say, my dear friend, the devil always chooses to be an angel of light. We go down the road and we see a beautiful woman on a billboard with a glass of Shinley's in her hand or Jack Daniel's. Now, my friend, when you go down the skid row and you see a man in the gutter, you say, he's gone to the devil. No, he's gone to the dogs. That's the devil's fear. The devil is an angel of light. So he embodied the serpent. And he approached Eve and he said this, Hath God said. I want to say the devil's primary uh, approach to you will be to get you to question God's Word. And Eve said, God said, we can't touch the tree, we can't eat of it. If we do, we're going to die. And the, Satan said this, he said, listen, God knows that in the day you eat of the fruit, you're going to become as God's knowing good and evil. And I believe Eve said, let me think about that. We'll be as God's. So because of Adam and Eve's pride, they traded their innocency for iniquity. Then you go to Daniel chapter 4. A man by the name of Nebuchadnezzar was the most feared man on the face of the earth. One night Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. In his dream he saw a tree that ascended all the way up to the heavens. But one day the tree was cut down and it was wet with the dew of the earth. So after his wise men could not interpret the dream, Daniel was called for, and Daniel interpreted the dream. He said, King Nebuchadnezzar, that tree represents you. He said, one day your fame is going to grow up to the heavens, and all people, nations, languages, and tongues will bow and tremble at your presence, however. One day your heart will be lifted up with pride. You'll forget that it's God that owns and rules the kingdom." So you're going to be taken down from your kingly throne. And for seven years, you're going to live like a wild beast of the field. One year had passed, and Nebuchadnezzar had forgotten about his dream. One day as he was out surveying Babylon, in Daniel 4 and verse 30, he said, Is this not great Babylon that I have built for the might of the house of my kingdom by the might of my power? And he began to strut what he had done in Babylon. The Bible says in Daniel 4.31, While he was yet speaking, there came a voice from heaven saying, Thy kingdom is departed from thee, Nebuchadnezzar. Because of Nebuchadnezzar's pride, he was taken down from his kingly throne. His hair grew long like a wild animal. His fingernails grew long like the claws of an animal. And for seven years, Nebuchadnezzar was made to eat the the fruit of the field like an animal. He exchanged his fame for a field because of his pride. And then you go to Daniel chapter 5 and you meet his grandson whose name was Belshazzar. Belshazzar followed in his granddaddy's footsteps. The Bible teaches that one night the sun had just begun to set in the west and the stars and the moon began to appear. When in the midst of the Babylonian palace, King Belshazzar made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and he drank wine before them. The party was getting merrier and merrier. And all of a sudden, Belshazzar had an idea. He called for his servants to bring forth the golden and silver vessels which his grandfather had taken from the temple of Jerusalem. 
Now, do you know what Belshazzar was doing by that act? He was shaking his fist in the face of God. He was thumbing his nose in the face of God. He was saying, I'll show you who runs Babylon. And that night, the Bible says, as they drank wines, wine from the golden and silver vessels, the party was getting merrier and merrier. Strange wave of immorality and lewdness swept from one end of the palace to the other, when all of a sudden a hush came over the crowd, and the fingers of a man's hand appeared on the wall and wrote in a foreign language. The king's countenance was changed. His knees began to smite against one another. His heart began to pound as though it pounded out of his bosom. He called for his wise men, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers, and the astrologers. And he made them a promise that if any could interpret the handwriting, he would make him a third ruler of the kingdom, put a chain of gold about his neck, put a robe of scarlet about his body. The wise men labored long and hard, but nobody could interpret the foreign language. Finally, the queen entered the court, and she said, O King Belshazzar, live forever. Let not thy thoughts trouble thee, or let not thy countenance be changed. For there is one man in the kingdom, in whom the Spirit of the Holy God dwells within. In this man there is wisdom and understanding. Daniel will interpret the handwriting. So Daniel is summoned into the king's presence. By the way, who is it that the world calls for when they get in trouble? Have you ever heard anybody on his deathbed calling for a drug addict to come and comfort him? No, sir. Have you ever heard of a man on his deathbed calling for a drunkard or an atheist to come in and comfort his heart? Now, my dear friend, they can laugh at you. Some of you kids make fun of kids that are saved and love God Almighty, and you make snide remarks about their Christianity. But hear me, when you get in trouble, the first person you call for is a man of God. So Daniel enters the court. King Belshazzar makes him the same promise. He said, if you can interpret the handwriting, chain of gold will be put about your neck, a robe of scarlet on your body, you'll be the third ruler of the kingdom. Daniel stands back and he says, wait a minute, King, give your gifts to another. Give your rewards to another. You know, that is a principle of the Word of God. When Abraham was confronted with the king of Sodom, he said, listen, I don't want one shoelace from Sodom. My help comes from the Lord. It does not come from the world. No wonder Achan was stoned to death. He was not to go to a wicked place like Jericho and take of their spoils. He was to trust God for his needs. Here's an interesting thing. We were down in Fort Walton Beach, Florida for a meeting. On the marquee of a topless nightclub were these words. Please listen. We support, are you ready? The PTL Club. On the marquee of a topless nightclub. And you know what the PTL Club said? They said, we're glad to get it. We're glad to get it. Hear me. God's work is never run by rummage sales. God's work is never run by car washes and soup suppers. God's work is run by God's people. We don't go down to Egypt for help. Daniel said, you keep your gifts. Give your rewards to another. Nevertheless, I'll interpret the handwriting. He said, O King Belshazzar, your grandfather Nebuchadnezzar was given a kingdom robe with majesty, glory, and honor. People, nations, tongues bowed and trembled before his presence. But he said, one day his heart was lifted up with pride. God took him down from his kingly throne. He said, King Belshazzar, you've not humbled yourself. And because of your prayer, your kingdom is going to be overthrown this night and given to another. 
The Babylonian palace sat on a hill 400 feet high so everybody could view the majesty of the Babylonian palace. It was the most majestic thing of its day. Surrounding the Babylonian palace were walls that came up 300 feet high. These walls were so massive that three men could have a chariot race, three chariots side by side on top of those walls. Listen, there were a hundred gates, and back of every gate were one thousand soldiers waiting for any intruder into the palace. They were impregnable walls. You could not get over them. You could not get through them. You could not get around them. But God was working in a wonderful way. Outside the walls of Babylon flowed the Euphrates River. That night, Darius the Mede and the marching Persians crept in under the walls by means of the Euphrates River. That night, Belshazzar was slain. His kingdom was given to Darius the Mede. And because of Belshazzar's pride, he traded his royalty for ruin in one night. Ladies and gentlemen, 15 years of my life, my God was one comfort. Do you know I had one goal in life? And that was to be president of the high school student body. I didn't care who got in my way. I was going to be president of the high school student body. You talk about Watergate politics. Brother, I invented it. That's right. One night I was sitting in a meeting like this, only on a larger scale. And God the Holy Spirit spoke to my heart. The evangelist said, there's a young man in here tonight whose God is himself. His God is popularity. You know what I said? I said, who told him I was in here? Somebody's told him all about me. He said, why don't you quit being your own God? Why don't you quit living for yourself? I said, why don't you quit preaching to me? Don't you see these other 3,000 people? He said, come to Christ tonight. I said, Lord, I can't go. I said, if I go, my friends will see me go. And all of a sudden, tears broke out on my face and began to run down my cheeks. I took my handkerchief to wipe the tears away. I didn't want my friends to see me crying. You know what? The next thing I found myself in the aisle on the way downstairs to get saved. You say, well, Brother Comfort, what happened that night? Honestly, I've never found them all that happened that night, but I've never been the same. That night, it seemed as though a dark, heavy cloud was lifted, and the windows of heaven shone into my soul. And you know, for the first time in my life, young people, popularity didn't matter to me. I looked at Jesus Christ with my spiritual eyes, and I said, Lord Jesus, I'll go where you want me to go. I'll do what you want me to do. I'll be what you want me to be. And for the first time in my life, I could care less about being president of the high school student body. And I quote the words of the songwriter, so I prayed to God in earnest and not caring what folks said. I was hungry for salvation. My poor soul, it must be fed. Then, at last by faith, I touched him and like sparks from smitten steel, just so quick salvation reached me. Oh, bless God. I know it's real. And I'm glad that God made me willing that night to swallow my pride. And in a moment, I exchanged an eternity in hell for an eternity in heaven. Many will die and go to hell because of pride. Number two, many will die and go to hell because of presumption. Presumption. What does that mean? Some of you have this idea. I'm going to live like I want to live, and when I get in a crisis or on my deathbed, then I'll look to God and everything will be all right. That's presumption. And God does not hear a prayer of presumption. That's the kind of nation we live in. I was in Detroit, Michigan years ago when they had the riots in the late 60s. Do you remember that? I was about 20 miles from the city, and I looked out, and it looked like the entire city of Detroit was on fire. I never will forget. 
President Lyndon Johnson got on the television screen and he said this. He said, everybody, wherever you are, watching my, uh, uh, my face and hearing my voice, listen, get down on your knees now and ask God to save Detroit, Michigan. He said, Detroit, Michigan is about to be wiped from the face of the map. And as I sat there listening to that speech, I thought, what right do we have to ask God to save Detroit, Michigan? Listen, Detroit, Michigan didn't uh, close down the saloons. They didn't get rid of the prostitutes. They didn't get rid of the pornographic newsstands and the drug crowd. What right do we have to ask God to save Detroit, Michigan? And ladies and gentlemen, we have foxhole religion in America. Some of you have come to a crisis in your life and your child's been sick. And you've come to God and you said, God, if you'll heal my child, I'll serve you the rest of my life. And when your child got well, you forgot all about God. That's presumption. God doesn't hear a prayer of presumption. In 1 Kings chapter 21, we read about a woman who was the queen of presumption. She was the first president and founder of the women's lib movement. Her name was Jezebel. Now, there was only one thing wrong with her husband Ahab. He lived under petticoat government. His wife was ahead of his home. Well, one day, he went out and he saw a man who had a vineyard. Naboth was confronted by Ahab, and Ahab said, Listen, I'm a husbandman. That's my hobby. I like gardens. I like vineyards. He said, Your vineyard lies over to the palace. He said, Could I buy that vineyard from you? He said, If you won't sell it to me, then I'll trade you. I'll trade you a better piece of land for that. Naboth said, King, you know I respect you. You're the king. But he said, That's not mine to sell. That's not mine to trade. That's not mine to give away. That was given to my forefathers, an inheritance from the Lord. I'm to perpetuate that from generation to generation. I can't do that. So Ahab went into his room, and the Bible says his face was toward the wall. He was pouting. His wife Jezebel came in and said, Honey, what in the world is wrong with you? He said, That wicked old Naboth said he won't give me his finger. She said, now, honey, don't you realize you're the king of the land? That's your vineyard if you want it. She said, don't fret your pretty little head. I'll get that vineyard for you. So she called in some men from H-E-W to come and plot against Naboth. They said that Naboth, a man of God, had cursed the God of heaven. Naboth would not have done that. They took away Naboth's vineyard and stoned him to death in his own vineyard. Well, God had a man by the name of Elijah step on the scene. Elijah came to Ahab and he said, Ahab, because you shed the blood of the man of God, Naboth, one day in the field of Naboth, the dogs are going to lick your blood and eat your bones. He came to Jezebel and he said, Jezebel, honey, you haven't put anything over on God. He said, God knows what you've done. And because of your wickedness and slain God's man, one day the dogs are going to lick your blood and eat your bones in the field of Naboth. Three years have passed. And one day Ahab comes to Jehoshaphat, who was the king of Israel, and Jehoshaphat was really a man of God. He said, now Syria is over there in Ramoth, and that's our land. We've got to go and kick them out. And Jehoshaphat said, I'll go with you if you want to. Now, brother, that was disobedience. That was disobedience. Jehoshaphat had no business walking hand in hand with an idol worshiper and with a Baal worshiper. That's against the Word of God. So, somehow Ahab has some apprehension about the battle, even though he's always been victorious and valiant. 
so he calls 400 lying prophets before him. And he says, listen, I want to know, should I go out to Ramoth Gilead and fight against the Assyrians? They said, sure, you've always been victorious. Can you go ahead again? But somehow Ahab is not really satisfied. He said, isn't there a prophet of Jehovah around here? And uh, Jehoshaphat said, yes, there is. There's a man by the name of Micaiah. Ahab said, why? Micaiah's a fundamentalist. He said, well, I know what he's going to say. He's all the time prophesying against me these hard things. He said, all right, if you want to find out what God says, you better get that fundamentalist Micaiah. So Micaiah is called for. And Ahab said, all right, Micaiah, I want it straight from the Lord. Should I go out to Ramoth Gilead and fight the Assyrians, or should I forbear? Micaiah knows what he wants him to say. So with his tongue in his cheek, he said, Sure, king, you've always been victorious. You'll be victorious again. Somehow Ahab's not convinced. He says, Now, wait a minute, Micaiah. I want it straight. I want it straight. You tell me what God says. He said, All right, king, fasten your safety bell. I'm going to tell you what God says. He said, If you go to Ramoth Gilead to battle, it'll be the last battle you ever fight. They'll carry you back in a box. And Ahab said, Put that right winger in jail. Feed him with the bread of affliction. But I'll tell you what, Ahab is scared to death. He disguised himself so the enemy could not recognize him. He went out to battle in his chariot, but God had an archer shoot an arrow into the air. God directed the arrow into the bosom of Ahab, and Ahab was killed. Somebody said, Well, let's bury him. They said, You don't have to worry about Ahab. Because in the field of Naboth, the dogs are licking his blood and eating his bones. Ladies and gentlemen, his son Joram was killed in Naboth's vineyard. Fifteen years have passed. Jezebel thinks she's put one over on God. One day as she's upstairs in her room, there's a hot rodder comes riding along in his hot rod. Now that's right, Jay, you was a hot rodder. The Bible says he drove a furious chariot. So he had an oversized engine and dual carburetors and all the works, you know. He came hot rodding up. Evidently, Jehu was a very handsome young man. So you know what Jezebel did? She went over to her mirror and started painting up her face. You know, paint does wonders for old Barnes, doesn't it? But anyway, she looked in the mirror and she painted her eyes up like two hard-boiled eggs in a pile of coal. She put on her pants suit and she went to the window. J.U. parked his uh, chariot by a parking meter. He came over to the window. And she looked down and she said, Come up here, J.U., honey. J.U. wasn't around for any courting. He stepped back and he said, Who's on my side? Two eunuchs stepped to the window. He said, Throw down. They threw down. She was killed in an instant. The chariot wheels ran over her body, so her blood splattered against the feet of the horses. And when they got ready to bury her, do you know what they said? Don't worry about burying Jezebel. All that's left of Jezebel are the palms of her hand and her skull. And in the field of Naboth, the dogs are licking her blood and eating her bones. Now you hear me. You think you're getting away with adultery. You're not getting away with adultery. You think that you can live like you please, and whenever you get in trouble, you can turn to God. It doesn't always work like that. Let me remind you of Israel. Presumptuous. They thought they could commit idolatry and adultery, but when God got ready to judge them, all they'd have to do was look to God. But let me remind you, there came a day when God said, No, sir. Jeremiah seven sixteen. God said, Jeremiah... 
Don't pray for those people. Don't lift up prayer. Don't make intercession to me because I will not hear. Isaiah 1.15 And when you spread forth your hands, I will hide mine eyes from you. Yea, when you make many prayers, I will not hear your hands are full of blood. Psalm 81, 11, and 12. But my people would not hearken unto my voice, and Israel would none of me. So I gave them up to their own heart's lust, and they walked in their own counsels. Romans 1, 28. Even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Listen, the first time God Almighty speaks to your heart, it's loudly. And then the next time, it's a little fainter. And the next time, it's fainter. Until one day, finally, God may quit speaking to your heart. I remember when I was in high school, I thought I was in love with a young lady at Bob Jones Academy. So we were engaged. But one day, her daddy said, you've got to break up with him. He's going to be a preacher. I don't want you to be a preacher's wife. Well, you know, two years I pursued that thing, even though she broke up with me. I pursued it, and then one day I said, fiddle. Uh, let her go. I'm not going to waste my time anymore. But I'll tell you what, at the end of two years, her mind had changed, and she wanted to pursue the thing. I said, I'm sorry. Too late now. Too late now. I believe perhaps the saddest words in the Old Testament, Hosea 4.17, Ephraim is joined unto idols. Let him alone. Let him alone. And do you know that there comes a time when God the Father says to God the Holy Spirit, Let him alone. Let him alone. In this awesome passage, Proverbs 1, 24 through 28, Because I have called and ye refused. I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded and ye have said it not all my counsel, and with none of my reproof, I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh, when your fear cometh as desolation, and destruction cometh as a whirlwind. When distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. Hollywood came out with his song. He can turn the tides and calm the angry seas. Saner, sinner, call, he'll always find him there. And he'll always say, I forgive. Ladies and gentlemen, do you believe that song? If I believe that song, I'd have to tear my Bible up and throw it out the window. He will not always say, I forgive. Why does Isaiah 55 verse 6 say, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found? That connotates there's coming a day when he may not be found. Someday you'll hear God's final call to you. To take God's offer of salvation true, this could be it, my friend, if you but knew God's final call, God's final call. Many will die and go to hell because of pride. Many will die and go to hell because of presumption. And in closing... Many will die and go to hell because of pretension. Now, ladies and gentlemen, if you have not heard a word that I have said thus far, you peel your ears for the next five minutes. Everything that I've said thus far has been incidental to my last point. This is by far the most important thing that I'm going to say tonight. Many will die and go to hell because of pretension. In Matthew chapter 13, there are seven parables concerning the last days. One parable is this. 
A master and his servants go out into a field and they sow wheat. While he and the servants sleep, an enemy who is a devil comes in and sows tares. After a while, the wheat and the tares grew up together, so you could not tell the wheat from the tares. One day the servants came to the master and they said, Master, let's cut down the tares so the wheat can grow alone. The master said, No, because right now the wheat and the tares are not clearly distinguishable. But when the harvest time comes, you'll be able to tell the wheat from the tares. And then we'll cut down the tares and we'll cast them into unquenchable fire. Now, ladies and gentlemen, some of you look like wheat, but you're tares. And when the harvest kind comes, it will be unquenchable fire. Another parable concerning the last days, Matthew chapter 22. A king made a wedding feast to his son. He went out and he invited many people to the wedding feast. When he came back, he found there a man who had not on the customary wedding garment. In those days, in order to attend the wedding feast, a man had to wear a particular garment. Matthew 22:13. Then said the king to his servants, Bind him hand and foot and take him away, and cast him in outer darkness, where there shall be weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, ladies and gentlemen, some of you tonight have on the garment of church membership. You have on the garment of self-righteousness, but you do not have on the wedding garment of salvation. And when the king comes, it will be outer darkness for the pretender. Matthew 25, another parable concerning the last days. There were ten virgins. Now, mind you, five were not harlots and five virgins. All ten were morally spotless. But five had the oil of the Holy Spirit. Five had not the oil of the Holy Spirit. While the bridegroom tarried, they all slumbered and slept. There went out a cry at midnight, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. And the Bible says, They that were wise took their lamps, and they went to meet the bridegroom. The others said, Give us of your oil. They said, No. There won't be enough for you and us too. The Bible says, They that were wise went in with him to the marriage, and the door was shut. Matthew 25, 12, The virgins came to the door, pounded on the door, and said, Let us in. But Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, I know you not. In the Greek language, there is a double negative in Matthew 25, 12. And you know what Jesus said? He didn't say, I knew you once and you lost your salvation. He didn't say that. He said, you were never, no positively never saved. Do you know, ladies and gentlemen, the Bible teaches that at the judgment bar of God, miracle workers will be turned into hell? Matthew seven twenty one through 23. Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. For many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord. Have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Now, I want you to know that these miracle workers were not liberal preachers. Because they did miracles in the name of Jesus Christ. You know, there's coming a day when ten evangelists are going to stand before God... And they're going to say, God, people stood in line for blocks to have me heal their bodies, and I did all manner of miracles in your name. And Jesus is going to say, listen, mister, you were a phony. You were a pretender. Your name's not in the book of life. I think of this, pastor. If God is going to turn the miracle worker into hell, how much more is he going to turn the Sunday morning Christian into hell.
Some of you are not miracle workers. You think one hour on Sunday morning and you've done God a favor. If God will turn the miracle worker into hell, don't think there's going to be much chance for the Sunday morning Christian. Do you know in the early church there were no pretenders? Sometime when you get opportunity, read the first five chapters of the book of the Acts and underline every time the word A-L-L is used. For instance, Acts 2 verse 1. And when the day of Pentecost was full of come, they were all together in one accord and in one place. Acts chapter 2 verse 4, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Acts chapter 2 verse 44, and all that believed were together and had all things common. Acts chapter 2 verse 45, and they parted their goods and possessions and parted to every man as every man had need. Acts 2 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. Acts 4 verse 31, and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost. Acts chapter 4 verse 33, great grace was upon them all. Acts chapter 5 verse 5, and great fear came on all them that heard these things. Acts chapter 5 verse 11, great fear came on all the church. Now, why were there no pretenders? Because, ladies and gentlemen, a conservative guess would be that 95% of the early Christians died a martyr's death. And nobody would pretend. He knew that if he pretended, he might wind up in a martyr's grave. As you go to the catacombs of Rome, there are some 3 to 50 million graves of Christians who were martyred for their faith in Christ. They would go to the Circumus Maximus in the Colosseum on Sunday afternoon. Take a Christian time to two animals. The animals would go in opposite directions until the Christian was burst asunder in the middle. They would take a Christian, saw uh, the center out of a log, put the Christian inside the log, saw the log in two until the Christian was sawn asunder. They would take a Christian, douse him with pitch, light a match, and they would scream with glee as Christians became human torches. I think about Polycarp, the aged pastor of the church at Smyrna. When Polycarp was well in his 90s, he was brought to the pro-council. He was urged to renounce his faith in Christ and escape execution. But Polycarp came out with these famous words. He said, Eighty and six years have I served the Lord Christ, and He's never done me anything but good. How then can I renounce my King and my Savior? That day they led this tottery old man out to the stake to nail him to the stake. As they started to pound the ten-inch spikes in his hands, he said, no. He said, you don't have to nail me to the stake to secure my remaining in the fire. He said, the same God that brought me to the fire will give me grace to remain in the fire without being nailed to the stake. That day they doused this old man with pitch. They lit a match. His body became a human torch. And you know what Polycarp was heard praying? He was heard praying, I thank thee, O God, that thou hast preserved me until this moment and given me the opportunity of taking my place among the martyrs. Say, they had something, didn't they? And that kind of thing eliminated any pretension. But today, you don't pay with your life if you name yourself a Christian. And that's why we have so many pretenders and phonies. Here are two young men come to the same church, sit on the same pew. They both claim to be saved. One of them has his Bible. The other one never brings his Bible to church. One of them is sitting on the end of his seat, listening to the Word of God. The other fellow is sleeping. He's passing notes. He's writing notes. He could care less about the preaching. When the invitation comes, one fellow is praying. The other fellow could care less. He's looking around. When the amen is said, he makes a beeline for the back door. All right, what's the difference in those two fellows? One of them saved, 
and one of them's a pretender. And you hear me and hear me well. The hottest place in all of hell will be reserved for a pretender. You say why you say that. Second Peter 2, 21 and 22. For it had been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after they have known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it's happened, it's happened in the true proverb, the dog is turned again to his vomit and the sow that was washed to her wallowing in the mire. Some say there's a Christian who lost his salvation. It is not. Ladies and gentlemen, God never calls his children pigs and dogs. We're sheep. We're heirs of God and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. You know who those pigs and dogs are? They're people who are members of fundamental Baptist churches, but they've got a pig's nature. They've never been born again. And God says it would have been better for you to be born in the jungles of Africa never having heard the word of God than to die and go to hell as a pretender. Are you a pretender tonight? God help you to get saved if you're a pretender. Let's bow our heads in prayer.